ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong and if you've just started back at work, you might be feeling a bit, well, rusty, getting back into the work year. You might feel your mind wandering a bit, daydreaming of being back at the beach. to work. So in this episode of This Working Life, you'll be hearing from one of the world's top experts on attention. Most people tend to think of focused attention as being in two states. You're focused or unfocused. But it's a lot more nuanced and complex than that. Together, we'll learn why our attention spans are declining. You know, it's a little bit like a Las Vegas slot machine and we'll figure out what we can do about it in our day-to-day work. The most important thing is to think about people's well-being. Organizations tend to stress maximizing productivity at the expense of well-being. But people are getting exhausted. My name is Gloria Mark. I am a Chancellor's Professor Emerita at University of California, Irvine. And If people's well-being was put first, people will be more productive. There's a psychological theory that's called the broaden and build theory. And it shows that when people feel positive, when people's well-being is is good, people can perform better. People can be more creative. Their performance would be better intellectually and emotionally, people would perform better at meetings. And so rather than push people to their limits, let's think about what we can do to maximize well-being, because the byproduct of that is better performance. And in fact, well-being is the number one priority. I mean, this has a, a personal story for you, doesn't it, Gloria? Because you were what you thought a picture of health at one point. What then happened? That's right. I I received the the shock of my life. Uh, I was (laughs) diagnosed with stage three colon cancer. And I I thought I was, you know, completely healthy. I I jogged every day. I ate healthy, kept my weight down. People used to comment how healthy I was. And then all of a sudden I got this diagnosis. But, you know, I had been under a tremendous amount of stress. And I realize that, you know, there there's no causal link that we know of now where stress causes cancer. We there there might be, but we can't say that definitively. But I felt that this this diagnosis was a wake up call for me that I need to change things. I can't go on uh, being this stressed. So, uh, you know, I began to think very seriously about um, stress in our lives and and what that does to us. And for those of us trying to manage stress in our lives, I would just love to know from you, what are the things that you do to manage your stress, particularly as it pertains to that idea of the multitasking and trying to do too many things, thus causing a stress response in our bodies? Yeah. So the most important thing you could do is to know when to take breaks, when to pull back. There's a Japanese expression called yohaku no bi, which refers to the beauty of empty space. 
And if you've ever been to Kyoto, there's a beautiful Japanese garden that has rocks, the most beautiful rocks positioned in such a way uh, that, you know, just makes the design um, just just so beautiful. But it's the space around the rocks that really set them off. And when I was an artist, when when I studied painting, we also learned to be aware of the space around the figure, because that space is really what makes the figure shine. And so I use that as a metaphor when I think about our day, to think about the empty space in your day. That's the time in your day to pull back and you can meditate, you can contemplate, right? It's the time when you just pull away from work for a few minutes to let your mind reset, to let your attentional resources replenish because we have finite attentional resources. It's like a tank that drains. And when it gets too low, right, we start to get fatigued, pull back replenish that tank, and then you can go back to work and you'll perform a lot better. We're going to hop, skip, and jump now to the year 2000. You moved back to the US after working in Germany. Now, your relationship with technology, as it did for all of us, really changed quite a lot during that time. And in particular, you noticed a change in your attention span. Can you describe that difference between Germany and then going back to the US and working in the US? So when I worked in Germany, I worked at a research institute, and I used to think of it as a life of luxury because I only needed to focus on one project. And then in the year 2000, I came back to the U.S., so I changed countries, I changed jobs, changed cultures. All of a sudden, I'm an assistant professor, and I'm juggling multiple research projects and teaching mentoring students, writing grants, serving on committees. And all of a sudden, I just found my attention being pulled in so many different directions. What was happening? (laughs) I was trying to figure it out. Now, and it was really interesting the way your day was structured in Germany, particularly around the lunches. Do you want to just sort of describe that a little bit? Yeah. So in Germany, the main meal of the day is it's called Mittagessen, which is, it means a a warm meal. And so people generally have their main large meal of the day around lunchtime. Uh, So right before lunchtime, a colleague would walk around the office, gather whoever was available, and we would all walk together to the restaurant or the cafeteria for lunch. And we'd sit around in a big group, we'd gossip, we'd talked about tech. I I learned a lot about tech in those discussions. And then after lunch, we would take what's called a rund, which is a round, a walking tour around the campus for 20 minutes to kind of get ourselves refreshed. Came to the U.S. You know, I had all these different projects that I'm trying to keep track of. And so lunchtime for me was a break between teaching, between projects where I could run to the cafeteria, buy takeout, race back to my office. And as I ran down my corridor, I saw all the open doors of my colleagues sitting in front of their computers, eating their lunches, and I slid in 
to my own chair behind my computer doing exactly the same thing. And I realized that not only was I having trouble staying focused on any one particular thing, but I was also glued to the computer. Mm. It was hard to pull away. So I started talking with other people and asking them, you know, are you feeling the same thing? Are you experiencing this? And other people said, yeah, we we feel the same way. So I decided, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist. I can study this. So I set out to study this empirically. Gloria, what you're describing there, it sounds very familiar to many of us in our work lives where we don't have enough time to do all the different projects and we feel like we're being pulled from pillar to post and we don't even have time to have a proper lunch and definitely not a nice walk around after lunch. So you then decided to um, experiment and to um, go deeper on this and you created what you called Living Laboratories. Now, tell us about these and what you observe studying people's use of technology. Yeah, so I'm trained in psychology, and typically what psychologists do is you bring people into a laboratory, and you set up a controlled experiment, and that's really important because you want to control all those things that are not going to affect the result so that you can really focus on the variable of interest that you're studying. But I realized, you know, when we use tech, right, tech is such a part of our lives. It's it's so embedded, so integrated into our lives. It's just not possible to pull people out of their natural environments to study how they're using tech. So I thought it made a lot more sense to go to where people are. And so that's what I called creating living laboratories. Now, how do you do that? Mm. How do you study people when they're using their their tech in their offices? Well, you can use sensors. So we used computer logging techniques so that we could track how often people are switching screens. It's a good proxy for how often people are switching attention. We used uh, we started off using heart rate monitors to measure stress, which is measured through something called heart rate variability. We used uh, these lightweight cameras people wear around their necks that take continual photos. You could get a sense of when people are having face-to-face conversations because we used image detection software that could recognize if faces were present or not. Uh, We also used probes where we would ask people, okay, at this point in time, we would ask certain things about their perceptions of what they were doing. And then we also gave people a whole battery of different kinds of tests, personality tests, stress tests, so that we could get a comprehensive idea of what was going on when people were in their natural environments using their devices. So what did you find? So, you know, when we first started studying attention on screens, we found the average duration of attention was two and a half minutes. Uh, This was back in 2004. And at the time, it astonished me because I thought, wow, that's that's really short. Uh, in 2012, we started using computer locking techniques, and we found attention averaged about 75 seconds 
on any screen. Wow. And then fast forward uh, between the years 2016 to 2020, we found attention averaging 47 seconds on any screen. Uh, It's not just our work. Others have replicated it. They found 44 seconds, 50 seconds. The average comes to 47 seconds. Okay, wow. Let me just repeat that for you. So in 2004, Gloria found that people's attention spans lasted on average two and a half minutes. Fast forward to 2020, and the average attention span is down to 47 seconds. Less than a minute. So attention spans have measurably diminished over the last 20 years. We often assume that our short attention spans are because the distractions come from outside, but your research shows that very often it's coming from within. Yeah. So, of course, when people think about interruptions, they think about something that's outside of them. There's some external trigger. So, it's a social media notification, an email notification, a phone call. Yes, of course, we have we have these interruptions. But it turns out that about half the time, people self-interrupt. We interrupt ourselves. Why? Well, maybe you have a memory of something you forgot to do. And in fact, we tend to remember unfinished tasks better than tasks that are finished. Why? Because those are off our plate. They're done out of our minds. But these unfinished tasks just keep churning around in our minds, and they can sometimes come back, bite us, and urge us to go finish them. So there's a lot of cues that we see on our screens that remind us to do other things. So if you have a lot of browser tabs open, you might glance at one and say, ah, there's that Facebook tab, or there's that Instagram tab, and you know, you're know you tempted to check it. But it also turns out that there's so many other forces in our environment that leads us to be distracted. One of the big challenges that we all face in life is paying attention and sustaining attention. So really focusing on things for an extended period of time including at work. Hi, my name's Paul Jins. I'm Associate Professor in Educational Psychology at Sydney School of Education and Social Work at the University of Sydney. In a recent study, we tested a strategy that we thought would be useful for refreshing our attention. Here's how it worked. We first aim to deplete people's working memories by getting them to do a complex mathematical problem-solving set of tasks under time pressure. The next thing that we did was give one group the opportunity to take a five-minute break just doing nothing. In another group, we gave them the option of actually watching a nature-based video, a bushwalk on Mount Beauty up in Queensland. And in a third condition, we didn't give them that option to take a break. What we found was that the two rest groups did substantially better on a subsequent test of solving mental maths problems than the group that didn't get a break. The results of this study, we think, can be applied in many different settings, including work settings, 
anywhere where people are looking to do hard, sustained cognitive work. So under those conditions, if you're looking to sustain your productivity over a sustained period of time, thinking about building in rest breaks will probably be a good idea. People tend to have rhythms of focused attention throughout the day. Professor Gloria Mark again from the University of California, Irvine. People don't have these long periods of extended focus. So what we did in our studies was we sent people probes and we had them answer two very simple questions. How engaged are you in the thing you were just doing and how challenged are you in the thing you were just doing right now? And so I came up with a framework of attention that when people are very engaged and challenged, we call that a state of focus. It's focused attention. If you're very engaged and not at all challenged, we call that rote attention. It's a, it's a label that I use. When you play solitaire, that's rote attention. Or if you play Candy Crush, or if you're surfing the internet, all those things, right? Watching YouTube, it's engaging, but it's not really a challenge. If you're not engaged and not challenged, we call that boredom. <laughs> and if you're challenged and not engaged. We call that frustrated attention. It's a label. When, when I have a tech problem, and I don't know how to solve it, but I have to because I have to use my computer, I am frustrated. I am challenged and not engaged in trying to figure this out. So we came up with this framework. Most people tend to think of focused attention as being in two states. You're focused or unfocused. But it's a lot more nuanced and complex than that because you can be focused and challenged or focused and not at all challenged. Turns out that people have peak times of focus in rhythms, right? People have natural rhythms. There's one peak focus time around mid-morning, and then there's a second peak focus time around mid-afternoon. This varies depending on your chronotype. If you're an early type, you're someone who gets up at 5 a.m., your peak focus time's a lot earlier. If you're someone who doesn't start getting up until 11 o'clock, of course your peak focus time is much later. But we do find these kinds of rhythms that ebb and flow throughout the day. And am I in control of my focused attention? Do I control where my mind is focusing? You can control. You have the ability to do that. Do we do that always? No, we don't. What might we do to help ourselves as much as possible then, Gloria? So one of the things that I find helps myself a lot, I call it meta-awareness, which is being aware of your activities as they're unfolding. Now, we do so many things that are automatic. I reach my phone automatically and swipe it open without thinking, or I click on a news tab without even thinking. So many of these actions are automatic. Meta-awareness is about bringing these unconscious actions to our conscious attention. When we can do that, we can be more intentional we can act, we can, we can be deliberate, we can make plans. So I can say to myself, okay, 
I'm not going to check social media. I'm going to work 20 more minutes. And then as a reward, then maybe I'll go to social media for a few minutes. But it's about stopping yourself in your tracks and being aware of these unconscious actions. And I hear, Gloria, that you were slightly unpopular for a week because you disabled email notifications and actually all emails in a corporation for a week. What happened? Yeah, it took me six years to find a company that was willing to let me cut off email for a week because I wanted to find out whether without email, people could focus better, focus longer, and be less stressed. And so I finally found an organization. They were willing to do it. And at the end of five days without email, people did wear heart rate monitors. And we found that people's stress was measurably lower when they spent that week without email. We also found that people could focus significantly longer on all their other work without email. The other thing we found is that people tended to have more face-to-face interactions. So instead of just sending an email to the person down the hall, they actually got out of their chairs and walked down the hall and uh, interacted with people. So they reported that they felt more fulfilled socially without email. Now, we can't all just switch off emails for a whole week on and off for our own work, but what about switching off email notifications? What might that do, do you think? Oh, I I think that's very important to do that. We did find, though, in a study that even when email notifications were turned off, people do tend to self-interrupt to check email. So it's not going to completely eliminate the problem. We still have these social natures. We're curious. And of course, we have these expectations that are deeply embedded in email that we're going to respond fast. And so we're we're conditioned to be checking email. So it's not going to get rid of the problem completely. But uh, I would say it's a good first step is turn off those notifications. We are conditioned to check email. So, you know, it's a little bit like a Las Vegas slot machine. You know, you play the slot machine most of the time, you lose, right? But every so often, you're going to win and you get this huge reward. And email is the same way. It's called intermittent reinforcement. It's a kind of psychological learning that every so often, At random times, you might get a reward. So I might check my inbox and I get an invitation to give a keynote speech or I get some other email from a long lost friend, right? That's a great reward. Most of the time though, it's not that way. But getting those randomly reinforced positive emails is enough to keep me checking. Well, I mean, how do we deal with that? Because that's um, a behavioral and it's a belief system, isn't it? That uh, we will get dopamine hits when we check our emails. Therefore, I need to check my emails like the slot machines. How do we actually deal with that? You know, unfortunately, randomly reinforced behavior is the hardest behavior to extinguish. That means it's the hardest behavior to stop. Because if rewards were to come on a regular schedule, people very quickly learn that, okay, 
the rewards have stopped. But when it's a random schedule of rewards, you can never expect when it's going to come. And it's the hardest behavior to extinguish. That's why I think that we need support from organizations to help us reset our expectations. Thank you so much, Gloria. My pleasure. Dr. Gloria Mark, Chancellor's Professor of Informatics at the University of California, Irvine, and author of the book, Attention Span. Thanks also to Paul Jins, Associate Professor in Educational Psychology at the University of Sydney. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. It's produced by Zoe Ferguson and mixed by Brendan O'Neill. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.